Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook, Kevin. Wow, this week's interview is with the one and only Rand Fishkin. Rand is the founder of SparkToro, which is an audience research tool that we'll get into more in the episode. He's also the co-founder of Moz, one of the world's largest SEO companies. We're both so stoked and so honored to have someone like Rand on the podcast. But Kev, beyond our own fanboying, Rand is actually a perfect guest to have on and add value to our listeners. He really exemplifies the be helpful approach that we advocate for through his actions in the space. And SparkToro as a platform is really geared towards helping businesses and the smaller guys figure out their dream 100s so they could get to work on growing their amazing businesses through the platform. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure talking to Rand. And well, as as you see, listeners, George had a great time speaking to Rand. <laughs> I had some technical difficulties that took me out of the most of the conversation. But nevertheless, a very good session with Rand. He's got some grand plans too for where he wants to take the platform and where we'll go from here. And we're pretty excited to see how it all unfold as both big fans of his work and the platform. Although we're not sponsored by him or SparkToro in any form, we really just wanted to showcase a great example of how you can use something like SparkToro to do this be seen part of the framework and, and amplify your helpful content. He really encapsulates the first three Bs of our five Bs framework, doesn't he, Kev? He's, you know, be ready, SparkToro helps you do that. Be helpful, Rand is super helpful. And be seen, the tool helps you do that too. So listeners, we really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rand Fishkin. 
Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. Listeners, as you know, we rarely have guests on our show. Instead, we select a few true experts who really align with our view that B2B marketing is more about people, not platforms. And I couldn't think of a better fit than today's special guest, marketing legend Rand Fishkin. Rand is the founder of SparkToro, an audience research tool that helps marketers, PR folks, entrepreneurs, and product builders without the need for expensive, time-consuming, or inaccurate surveys or impossible-to-scale manual research. Now, I should also mention that uh, Rand is the co-founder of Moz, one of the world's largest SEO companies. And if you're in the marketing world, you should have heard of it. Rand, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Good to be here, George and Kev. Look, Rand, I want to start by thanking you. It's a bit of a fanboy moment for Kevin and myself. Moz blog is really the reason that I got into marketing. It's what made me fall in love with it. And to be honest, Rand, if I didn't fall in love with marketing, Kevin and I would probably still be unhappy lawyers. Our parents might be a lot happier with us, but we wouldn't be happy ourselves. <laughs> I, can, I can understand that. I think, uh, weirdly enough, my, uh, my dad, I don't think he's ever been proud of me, um, which is fine. <laughs> Not a big deal. You know, Rand, I like to tell my father, who's a doctor, I say, look, I think marketing's fundamentally about helping people. And, uh, you know, we're not saving lives like a doctor, but at least we're trying to help people. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I think marketing, uh, when it's done well, when it's done for the right products, when it's done for the right reasons, it is about empathy, understanding people and serving them with messages that resonate and help them accomplish their tasks and solve their problems in places where they hopefully pay attention. I'm going to grab that soundbite and send it to my dad. And uh, I'll say, look, Rand Fishkin said this. I mean. <laughs> look, Rand, perhaps to help set the scene for the emergence of SparkToro, I want to start with a quote from a piece that you wrote on SparkToro. It was a bit of a launching off point. And to quote you in an article, you said, in 2020, Airbnb cut $542 million of performance advertising spend and saw no measurable fall off in attributable sales. They continued this ad slashing practice in 2021 with similarly eye-popping numbers. Could it be that all those ads did nothing? Could you perhaps elaborate on that, Rand, and give our listeners a bit more context? Yeah, so first off, Airbnb is far from alone on this topic, George. Um, Chase Manhattan Bank did this. Uh, famously, eBay did this years ago. P&G has done this with a bunch of their product lines and hundreds, if not thousands of smaller businesses um, have done it as well with, with less uh, fame and coverage where essentially they reduce, massively reduce their ad spend and or the visibility of, of where their ads appear and they see little to no impact. Sometimes they even see positive lift, which, which is mystifying. And my theory goes like this. If you are Google and Facebook or, or Amazon um, and you're offering advertising sort of all across the web and, and on all these channels and in all these places, this applies to everything from, you know, Instagram and WhatsApp to uh, LinkedIn to any, any third party ad network you can imagine. Your incentive is attribution, not lift, attribution. What I mean by that is, I, Google, would like to take credit 
for as many possible sales that happen on your website. And so what I know is here are where lots of your visitors and audience go as they visit the web. And here's lots of things they search for. Here's lots of YouTube videos that they watch. Here's, you know, lots of, um, you know, Gmail inboxes that they have, all of these places where Google can show ads. And then the view through conversion attribution, like, well, this person maybe didn't click your ad, or maybe they even did click your ad, but it turns out they would have bought from you anyway. They would have made that sale. You, you would have made that sale regardless of whether Google showed that ad, Facebook showed that ad, they saw that ad on Twitter or LinkedIn. And this is deeply concerning for marketers because what we end up doing is we put budget against places where we can perfectly ascribe attribution rather than places where we can serendipitously over the long term see brand lift, but it's very hard to measure. Look, I think that's something that Kevin and I as former performance marketers were really guilty of ourselves, uh, handling big budgets for big businesses. And we were constantly trying to uh, justify and show um, that there is an uplift from the activity that we're doing really just in the lower funnel. And it really, especially with view through attribution, it really starts to blur that line, I think, between capturing and actually creating demand. Um, what does it mean to you, Rand, to truly create demand? Yeah, so demand creation is essentially when you um, go and reach an audience that is potentially receptive to your message and you inspire them to whatever, dig deeper, learn more about your product, um, discover that the problem that they have can be solved by your product. And, and that demand generation process can be seen in essentially a lift, a, a, a growth in the total number of people who maybe wouldn't have otherwise purchased your product. It's infuriatingly hard to measure. In, in fact, it can be next to impossible to prove. And this is why very few marketers invest in it. And this is why it's so valuable. Because competition is low and inventory is high. So if you think about, you know, a podcast that where a bunch of your audience listens and, you know, being a guest on that podcast, oh man, that's going to be it's going to be super difficult to do. Like, how do I even pitch the host and see if they would want to have me on? And, oh man, then I got, I got to figure out if my audience actually listens to that podcast. That's going to be a whole process of research. And gosh, and then I got to figure out something clever and interesting to say on that podcast. I, I probably should do some like, you know, content generation work before I do that and, and have something that would make the host want to invite me as a guest. I'm going to have to build up my profile. You know what? Screw it. I'm just going to throw more money at Facebook. And because most people throw more money at Facebook, it's very uncrowded in that pitch the podcast space or get on that YouTube channel space or get this social media account to cover me, get featured in this email newsletter, have this uh, industry conference, you know, select you as a speaker. Those types of things are difficult to do and difficult to measure. Only a few people do them. They're not very crowded. They tend to have incredible results. They're hard to scale. Therefore, they're great opportunities. Well, I think this is a good opportunity now to look at, okay, now we know what the demand creation uh, process is like. 
I mean, how does Spark Toro help marketers in that demand creation process? Where does it sort of fit in there? Perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit more in detail about what Spark Toro does and and then how it can help there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, I think fundamentally what helps here is audience research, right? So bigger than Spark Toro, Spark Toro is just one tool that provides some kinds of audience research. I, I can talk about that in a sec, but Audience research is this idea that before I go market a product to people, I should understand who they are, what they talk about, their demographics, their behaviors, their sources of influence, what platforms they use, uh, what they subscribe to and read and watch and listen to and follow, so that when I speak to them, when I send send a message out, right, in, in whatever type of marketing, I make sure that I am doing it in a way that makes sense to them. I'm doing it in a way that is resonant, that sort of, you know, creates memory association. I'm doing it through a platform that they know, like, use, and trust. Very important. And, and part of the audience research process is, you know, classically, it's interviews and surveys which I think are great tools, and I'm not recommending that anyone throw them out. But I do strongly suggest that on top of surveys and interviews, you layer audience research at scale. Meaning, you know, um, let's see, if you, if you want to do this the manual way, right? The manual way, kind of before SparkToro, we saw my co-founder and I created SparkToro because we saw some people doing this, right? So consultants and agencies like yourselves, right, would go out and they would say, okay, we're going to take your email list, right? And we're going to run that email list through Clearbit or Full Contact. And we're going to get everyone's, all the people who subscribe to your email we're gonna, or have purchased from you in the past, we're going to get their LinkedIn profile and their Twitter profile and their Facebook profile and their YouTube, like whatever profiles are public. And then we're going to co crawl those, right? We're going to build a crawler or we're going to send some poor intern to go visit all those pages and, and sort of look at activity on them and aggregate it together. So we'll be like, oh, okay, well, we visited, you know, 700 uh, Twitter pages of, you know, people who've purchased from us over the past two years. And what we saw is that, you know, 17% of them subscribe to this or follow this person on Twitter and 12% of them use this hashtag and 10% of them have these words in their bio. And, you know, 16% of the people on LinkedIn have, you know, this level of education and 12% say they're located in this country, like all these demographic and behavioral things. And you can get that at scale, which is so invaluable, is so valuable to add that onto surveys and interviews because surveys and interviews are terrible at this type of data at scale. You just can't ask people one-to-one -one or in a survey in an effective way, hey, can you give me a list of all the podcasts you subscribe to? Hey, can you tell me everyone you follow on every social channel? Hey, can you tell me what hashtags you've used in the past six? Like, no, they cannot. No one can do that. Like human beings are not capable of this type of um, answering. But the data is there passively if you want to go collect it. And so what a tool like SparkToro does, or, or uh, SparkToro has several sort of direct and indirect competitors, right? People like uh, Brandwatch has a, has a very expensive but very high quality uh, version of this. Um, which we call it audience with an S does this helixidide AI. Um, you can do some of these kinds of things through through similar web, at least in the on the web based um, version. That stuff is really, really useful to layer on top because then you can say, oh, OK, I'm trying to reach electricians in California. 
I know that they listen to these four or five podcasts. I know that they subscribe to these, you know, 150 YouTube channels. I know that they follow these people on social. So I can go in my ad targeting platform or I can go directly, you know, with outreach or I can go with my pitch or I can have my PR team, whatever. Go reach these people that I want to reach in the places where I know they pay attention and I have data to back it up. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast. That's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. That's audience research. I have to say, it's a tool that um, Kevin and I wish that we had. Uh, we came across SparkTora. I think I just came across it on LinkedIn. And to be honest, I had no idea that you were behind it at all. And I came across and I immediately sent it to Kevin. And I said, oh my God, look at this. Uh, at one point, you know, Kevin and I were talking about, you know, maybe there's a way of automating this whole Dream 100 process. And the Dream 100 listeners, as you know, is that, that idea that your dream customers are already out there. They're already gathering in certain places online and offline. And it's your job as the marketer to go and find out what those places are. And then we say with those places, you can either work your way into those communities or you can buy your way in with advertising dollars. And we were just like, wow, this is a sensational tool for helping form that Dream 100. And I've seen um, yourself and Amanda talk about the Dream 100, except you kind of use, I guess, probably a different phrase. I've seen you talk about it in terms of audience personas. Um, would you maybe be able to talk a bit more about audience personas? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, um, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a, I don't know what to call it exactly, contrarian maybe is the right word when it comes to personas. So I don't, George, the classic persona is this thing that's like, um, oh, here's general contractor Greg, and we're we're going to use GC Greg as our uh, persona, our avatar for our customer, and he's going to sort of represent for us who we want to reach in the market, and we're going to give him, let's give him two kids and a dog, and, you know, he likes his morning coffee hot, and uh, he goes on, um, you know... <laughs> I don't know, trips to Vegas once a year, like people will come up with these sort of ridiculous, stereotyped, very reductive, sometimes even, um, you know, ethnographically or demographically problematic and biased personas to describe their sort of ideal target customer. And they do it as, as one person and then they give it to the product team and they give it to the marketing team and they're like, okay, this is the person we're supposed to reach. If we reach people like this, that's, you know, that's, that's right on. And I, I think it's a, just a terrible idea to use personas in this fashion. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. So the, the way I think about a persona 
is instead sort of this data-informed, you know, not a singular individual, but a representation of the market that is broad and diverse in hopefully nearly the same ways that your actual market is broad and diverse. So you might say, there, there is no GC, Greg. What we have are general contractors. And we know that general contractors who fit into our audience tend to subscribe to these four sources, and they tend to listen to these podcasts, and they tend to follow these YouTube channels, and they tend to subscribe to these email newsletters in roughly these proportions. And, you know, 17% of them are women and 60% are men, and then we have 13% who are non-binary or other, and, you know, we have these... Uh, properties about their uh, education level and geographically where they're based, all these kinds of things. And that that type of a persona, an audience persona that that stretches across groups of people is truly useful because what you don't get is you don't get a, oh, okay, well, um, GC Greg, who likes to go to Vegas, like, let's make a total bro ad for this guy that could be produced by the Mountain Dew team and you know, throw that up on Instagram. And you see a lot of this, right? You see that like, if you've been targeted with advertising on Instagram, I guarantee at some point you've been like, oh my God, do they really think I'm that person? Is that, is that who they think I am? And, and that, is, that is because a lot of these marketers and advertisers, brand marketers and others, use personas in this classic reductive stereotyping way, and they don't think about the audience um, from a statistical, broad and diverse perspective. This, this is not about, um, you know, whatever political spectrum stuff or social issue stuff. This is about data that represents a group of human beings. And there, are, there is no group of human beings uh, on, <laughs> on Earth who are all exactly fitting into one bucket. Uh, exclusively. It just doesn't happen. We're unique organisms made up of a bunch of, you know, cells. <laughs> and that uh, that reductivism is, is just dangerous, I think, in marketing, right? It, it's missed opportunities. I love that because it it is so fundamentally about people and about how people learn and are influenced. I mean, personally, Rand, like I I don't really trust Google anymore and I don't want to blame you, but it's because of the SEO folks out there <laughs> that I feel have completely ruined Google. And when I go to buy anything, be it like a, a consumer good, something for the business, I just don't trust Google. Uh, did, was there a similar turning point for yourself? I mean, what led to you uh, thinking, I have to build something like SparkToro? Yeah, uh, to be honest, it was it was in those early days when... Um, Casey and I were looking at how people were doing audience research and essentially seeing, I think seeing the most sophisticated folks have to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on essentially a team of engineers to go take email lists, um, put them through, you know, an identity resolution service and then build crawlers, their own crawlers in house to go crawl all the social profiles and aggregate that data just so they could present one report one time to the marketing team that would show them, uh, you know, some of this information. We were like, oh, my, oh, my good God, they're spending, you know, a quarter million dollars to get that report 
I think we could do that for like two hundred dollars. <laughs> you know? Like we we could reduce this this cost by ten thousand fold, um, and we could make it accessible to a ton more people, right? I, I think the the other thing that I've always been passionate about. I'm sure you guys saw this with Moz too, right? Like that. I just did not. I did not believe in the idea that you should only or prior only serve or prioritize big companies with big budgets. I hate when the Goliath has all these advantages over the little guy. And I um Spark Toro, just like Maz, right, is is trying to put incredibly valuable, useful information that everyone should have. Um democratized at their fingertips so that you know it's not like the big big boys have the advantage over you and and what what I what I think is great about this is this kind of marketing doesn't work so well if you're at scale right like if you're um what whatever it is you know a giant corporation you're you're Costco and you're trying to reach you know millions of american consumers and canadian consumers Eh, like this kind of, you know, one to let me find a podcast, let me, you know, go do my YouTube targeting. Sure, there could be some ad tweaks and, and testing and tuning that that you could get value from. But oh man, if you're a challenger brand, you know, new to the market entrepreneur with your whatever regenerative agriculture um, e-commerce product, wow getting on that one podcast, getting on that one YouTube channel, getting that one piece of press, getting mentioned at that one website, having these like four people on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever talk about you can be transformative for your business. And it's going to be, you know, a drop in the bucket for Costco. So I, that's who I really want to help. That is where this idea came from. I love that. And I can always feel that passion, you know, behind you when you do that. I do think you come across as very genuine, hate the word authentic, but you know, very authentic, very true to, to connecting with, with people. And I love that SparkToro is like financially accessible for those smaller businesses, but also once you get in the tool, it's actually usable for smaller businesses because, and this is my favorite feature is the hidden gems, the hidden gems feature Rand. Uh, I think the hidden gems one is a much more realistic uh, approach to to marketing for someone who's just trying to reach out, just trying to get started, just trying to get their name out there. Baby, do you want to tell us a bit more about what the hidden gems feature is and why it is that you decided to include it? Yeah. So SparkToro basically works, right? You you select an audience, right? So you you go in and say, my audience... I don't know, uses the hashtag interior design, or my audience um, follows the social account at Randfish, um, or my audience uses these words in their bio, general contractor. Uh, and you can, you can come up with anything you want, right? Any, any uh, describable group of people who engage on the internet, you, you can generally reach them in one way or another. Uh, and then SparkToro will show you a whole bunch of data right? Um, percentage data about their behaviors and demographics. And so if you go to, you know, a tab like, show me, show me all the social accounts that that's followed by this particular audience, which is a good, good, good idea. Uh, you can, you can sort that by default. It is sorted by uh, the percent of audience that follow, which means that usually the big accounts in a sector are at the top. And what hidden gems, hidden gems is if you click the filters and you say, show me only hidden gems, 
Hidden Gems will show you accounts that have high engagement relative to their size, but tend to be smaller in terms of total reach. So they're, you know, the follower count on Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, tends to be smaller. But when they do post content to those places, it tends to get an outsized amount of whatever, likes and retweets and, you know, shares and uh, that, that kind of activity. And a lot of folks love this feature, like yourself, because it tends to surface um, kind of up-and-comers like people and publications and podcasts and YouTube channels and, and websites that you probably have a chance at getting editorially in front of versus, you know, the, the big publications. Like if, I, if I'm starting a new interior design business and I pitch Architectural Digest, whew, you know, that's going to be a slog. It's going to be really hard um, to get them to say yes to do an, a story on me. But... Maybe I can find, oh, check out this, you know, podcast, the Archonnect sessions from like this, you know, these, uh, these two women in, in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's not, it's not, maybe it's not as popular, but it's kind of a rising star in the, that one. I bet I can pitch them. And, and you probably can. So the, the opportunity tends to be more accessible to small and medium businesses and new businesses, which, you know, fits very nicely with what we try to do at SparkToro and who we're building it for anyway. And this is one of the reasons why when you get to the overview page, hidden gems is one of the things that we just show by default, like right next to the, here's the most popular things they engage with, and here's the hidden gems. Yeah, it's a, it's a great feature. And those businesses that are a bit smaller typically do have a much stronger relationship with their audience than the bigger ones do and can often be more convincing, have a little bit more sway. Uh, for context, listeners, it is a goal of mine to one day appear in the Hidden Gems feature of SparkToro. That would be wonderful. <laughs> so, Rand, I don't know if you can um, tweak yeah, some oh, things at your end to make that happen. <laughs> I'll just go into the code and, and manually put you in there. You'll get a bunch of outreach from, like, you know, interior decorators. Who are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, Rand, so once we have this list of people, like this, li this list of places that our dream customers are already gathering. I want to talk about what it is that marketers should actually do with that list. Now, in a whiteboard Friday session you did for Moz eight years ago, and I love, I always loved whiteboard Fridays, by the way, you called out and I quote, the prostitution of marketing. Can you recall what you meant by that? Oh man, I did a lot of whiteboard Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I don't recall. I don't recall this. You'll have to you'll have to refresh my memory. It was a great session. You actually mapped out pretty much what SparkToro would pull for you in terms of like uh, these are the different places that your dream customers already gather around like, you know, blogs, newsletters, podcasts, all that kind of thing. And you said that marketers uh, I guess turning uh, they're, they're creating the prostitution of marketing because they're looking at their relationship with every one of those as highly transactional. So they're looking at that blog, they're looking at that podcast, and all they're thinking is, how many people from there can I turn into customers of mine? And uh, perhaps has that jogged your memory a little bit more about what you were talking about when you when you were discussing the prostitution of marketing? Uh, it, cer it certainly sounds familiar. I think this is 
probably a topic that I've come to harp on many times. Although I would say in the past eight years, my views on sex work have generally uh, become more enlightened. And so I probably would not describe prostitution in a negative light nowadays. But yes, course, I think the transactional, the transactional relationship um, is something that continues to be a problem, right? Like if you look at, if you and I go and we are helping a client out and we think of, you know, all these, these sources of influence that reach our client's customers exclusively as, okay, how much money or time am I going to have to spend in order to get them to share my thing? As it is a it is a bad way of thinking about the problem to be solved. A great way of thinking about that problem is how could I provide value to them and their audience in such a way that they would want to amplify my work? And and just by changing the question that you ask at the at the core of your uh, marketing strategy, you open up the possibility for a much better, more long-term kind of relationship, more value addition, and probably more effective, right? More effective in that they're more likely to say yes, more effective in that their audience is more likely to find value from what you do, that when that transactional nature um, you know, fades into the background and a value-giving relationship is had, it, lots of things improve, right? And um, I, I think this, you know, if you want to take it to the um, analogy stage, you can imagine sort of, you know, meeting someone that you might enter into a romantic relationship with through mutual friends versus doing it on Tinder. One is very transactional. The other one is not at all. Like, it's often about Right, it's a real human connection, and you you have this sort of like caring and Tinder. Obviously, I'm I'm, um, you know, reducing Tinder to to its uh, stereotyped essence here. But there, there's a there's a transactional nature to the platform that um, certainly the UX of that app encourages. Yeah, I think uh, I think that. That makes a lot of sense. And Kevin and I talk about it in terms of dig your well before you're thirsty, you know, build that relationship with someone. And look, that is probably like maybe a bit more strategic and a bit less benevolent than, you know, we would like it to be. But uh, sometimes I think you have to maybe put it in those terms of strategy uh, for marketers to actually take it on board and get to use it. And I do wonder, Ran, if... I mean, the average tenure, I imagine, for a lot of marketers at companies is quite short. You know, it's, it's around a couple of years. And these relationships, like, it takes some time for them to uh, really come around and pay dividends. Do you think that is an issue? I mean, previously, you were at Moz for how long? 14, was it 14 years or so? Yeah, I mean, so I was at the company that became Moz even before that. So I think my, my tenure there was a total of about 17 years. Um, and you know, I started what, 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 what became Moz, what was SEO Moz in, in 2000, end of 2003. So yeah, I mean, um, was there for, for forever, right? <laughs> Just, you know, a lifetime in terms of a, um, especially a, a marketing career. And yeah, the reality is George that I think this is another problem with focusing on attribution 
over sort of a serendipitous belief that a long-term relationship will pay dividends for years and decades to come is that you, you know, if you're focused on next quarter sales and like, well, in the last 90 days, how many impressions do we get and how many visits did that send and how many did we convert? You are going to bias all of your marketing toward very transactional kinds of investments. And if you instead think, how can I be awesome to hopefully thousands or millions of people in a market around a topic, around an idea, and help them out uh, over the next 20 years? Hmm. Turns out that uh, that can really come back to you in powerful ways. And for folks who've seen that, they believe it. For a lot of folks who haven't seen it, they refuse to invest in it. Uh, it's a, it's a mental shift. It is a big mental shift, and I do kind of see why it's a hard one to grasp for those marketers who do shift around every couple of years. Um, because at the end of the day, they want to make impact. They want to look good in front of their execs, you know, as soon as possible. But um, really, I think it's just causing a massive race to the bottom of the barrel where uh, everyone's pushing all their money into really lower funnel advertising or if it's upper funnel, then it's kind of misdirected. It's not really uh, built on actual relationships with people. And it's just kind of a shame. It's it's so nice to see good, genuine marketing that is like a little bit risky, but can pay off so big over the long term. Yeah. I think that one of the things... Um, one of the things that we have a little bit forgotten in the marketing world and that we might need to revisit in the future is what our, um, what kind of previous generations of marketers did. And, and that is, you know, throughout the 20th century, there was no attribution. You, you couldn't, you couldn't measure, Hey, where did this visitor who came to our store, right? Or whatever, wrote into our mail catalog, mail-in catalog, like, where did they find out about it? You didn't have it, right? It just, it was, this, this was data that was impossible to get. And um, so what marketers did, what brands did, is they would test new messaging and content and marketing uh, strategies and channels and investments in different markets that were similar to one another. And then they would look for lift by geography. So it'd be like, okay, George, let's you and I, you know, whatever. We run brand advertising for Coca-Cola. We're going to run a new promotion for, um, you know, whatever, Diet Coke in Cleveland. And we'll run another one in Sacramento. And then we're going to see uh, which one did better. Oh, okay. They, they both perform pretty equally. All right, let's, let's take the one, you know, from uh, Cleveland and we're going to run that in Cincinnati as well huh, okay, we didn't get as much of a lift in Cincinnati. Like this this was the way, this was how marketing was measured. And you can still do that. No one is stopping you from using these sort of like 20th century techniques for, hey, we're gonna have a podcasting strategy. So next quarter, next two quarters, we're gonna invest in a bunch of podcast sponsorships and uh, you know guest appearances. And how are we gonna measure it? We're gonna measure it with brand lift. We are gonna look at an organic, you know, um, sort of map of what we expect searches for our brand name to be, traffic to our website to be, sort of awareness of our product to be, whatever. And then we're going to compare what we expect against what actually happens. 
And what do you know? Hey, we can see that over the you know 12 months following our podcast investment, we got a 16% lift over what we organically predicted we were going to do. I can't perfectly attribute those sales to the podcast, but that brand lift came from somewhere. Did we make other investments? No, we didn't. Okay, it must have been that. This is the kind of thing that you can do, uh, even if you're a very attribution-centric person. I mean, that's why my favorite book is actually Ogilvy on advertising, because I feel like that's where we're all trying to push back towards, <laughs> is, is the advertising world that Ogilvy operated in. And it's amazing looking through Ogilvy on advertising that he uses those like exact same principles in his advertising. Like every time he put out an ad, it was incredibly helpful. Like it focused on the benefits, not the features. When he talks about measurement, he refers to it in exactly the same way that you spoke about it. And I can't help but feeling, as you've just suggested, that we are heading back in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I think what's what's fascinating to me is the world is so much bigger and more diverse these days. I, I mean, diverse in all the kinds of ways that um, many things that were true, many sort of best practices that were true, still have application and also have nuance. So I, I think that, for example, you know, if you were to take the Ogilvy on advertising view of benefits over features, we should always present our product in terms of benefits, not features. There are a lot of B2B software companies who would do worse, will do worse if they tout benefits over features. Like, you're gonna feel better. Your team is gonna be more productive. You will accomplish your tasks better. You will reduce frustration. It will not be as effective as you can tag each sales cohort in the sales finder with a custom tag that you write. Feature, that's the feature I want. That's the feature I was missing. Don't tell me I'll reduce frustration. Tell me you have the feature I want. And does that work for Mountain Dew? No, hell no, <laughs> right? You, you, can't, you can't tout features of Mountain Dew. We added six new chemicals you've never tasted or heard of before. No, that's not, <laughs> you're not gonna sell me on that, right? Like you gotta, you gotta sell, Mountain Dew has to sell the experience. They gotta sell the, the benefits. But B2B, so, so I'm just saying, I, I, I love this classic thinking too. I think there's a ton to learn from there. And the world is nuanced, my friend. Like there's just, there's so much. I will just add that uh, when you say, you know, it, it makes sense to actually mention features um, when it's kind of more niche because we now have the ability to reach those niches that we didn't have before. And not just with paid advertising, but niche podcasts, right? Niche newsletters. Now audiences are gathering around all these different niche places. So we can actually speak the same language as someone else that other people might not understand and they didn't have that ability beforehand. That, that's right, right? There's, the, the most narrow you could be in you know, 1965 was, hey, I wanna run an ad on this radio station instead of that one. And we can, you know, we can run an ad um, on, a, on, on our version of a radio station that reaches one one thousandth of that audience and a hundred times more relevant. So it's, um, yeah, that, that, 
that change is substantive and I think shouldn't be forgotten. Very good point. I want to come back to Spark Toro and I don't know what your roadmap looks like, but can you give us an inkling as to, in your mind, what does Spark Toro look like five years from now? Yeah. Um, so let's see, my, my biggest three hopes for Spark Toro uh, in the future is one, that there is more tracking over time and value that people get from the tracking over time. So right now today, you know, I mentioned if you go to SparkToro, you sort of run a research report on a particular audience, it gives you a bunch of data. If you run that report next month or in three months, you'll see a bunch of new things, but you would have to like do your own comparison against the report you ran, you know, a month ago or three months ago to be able to see what's new and different and what's changed. That's super annoying. SparkToro should do that for you. It, it shouldn't be, here's a snapshot, here's another snapshot. It should be, here's the trends, here's what's rising and falling. Oh, look, this hashtag that was really popular last month, not so popular this month, you probably wanna update your ad cycle. Oh, this YouTube channel that no one in your audience was subscribing to last month now has 3% of your audience this month. That's still very small, it's way at the bottom of the list, you'd probably never have seen it, but we'll surface it for you because it is rising faster than anything else. That, that kind of like value over time, that tracking, uh, I think is, hugely important. SparkToro should obviously do that. Casey's working on it right now. Um, it's, as you might imagine, quite challenging to build. Not not simple, but, um, but it is coming soon. Uh, the other one is, I think SparkToro needs to have more coverage of channels and sources than it does today. So, you know, right now we have, this is intentional, but we have no coverage at all of TikTok. We have very minor coverage of Instagram. Um, Facebook groups are a bit of a blind spot and some of them are public. So we, we conceivably could service some data there. I just think it's, it's those kinds of expansions. Reddit is not in the product yet. Um, but th that's another thing Casey's working on hopefully for the quarter ahead. So like more coverage of more places, right? So that you can find those. Uh, the other one, you know what I really wish was in there is events. I feel like events are a huge source of influence, you know, whatever conferences and webinars and whatever, in-person symposiums, trade shows, all that kind of stuff. God, that would be so cool to be able, especially in B2B, to be able to see like, oh man, agricultural buyers of packaging, you know, design products all go to this event in Berlin every year. Oh man, I really want to see that. So that's another one. Um, and then the third thing is languages and geographic coverage. So right now, SparkToro is... English language only, US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, South Africa, not much else. Um, and we have a lot of demand from uh, South and Latin America, from Europe, from um, Asia, Middle East. So uh, we, we, need to, we need to jump on that. That's a, a lot of signal to take in. And um, look, if you guys can do it, we're all for it. That would save us a huge amount of time. And I'm especially excited about if you can get that offline component happening too, because um, there is such a big push online, but I still think that there's no replacing offline relationships. I still think that events and trade shows are still really important in the buyer's journey. And if you can... Um, point out those places and list those places, that would be immensely valuable. Yeah, no, that, I'm thrilled to hear that. So my theory, George, is that essentially, even though all those things are offline, they exist on the web as well, right? Like every 
every symposium, every webinar, every in-person conference, they, they have a website or a web page on a website. They have social activity around them, right? People follow that or they, you know, use the hashtag of the event or they link to it or they follow people who are connected with the event organization. And I think we can reverse engineer into that which ones get the, you know, how much engagement from a given audience. I think it'll be uh, a little bit more complex than the one-to-one -one, like, well, your audience follows this YouTube channel, right? Which you can just see on YouTube who follows what um, or who subscribes to which channel. But I, I still think it's going to be invaluable. And then, yeah, email newsletters, the same kind of thing, right? You'll have to use the social and link graph to do it, but you should be able to infer from those connections, which email newsletters, you know, are subscribed to by an audience. Well, we're looking forward, looking forward to seeing it happen. Absolutely. Uh, Rand, you've referenced the Lego movie and its huge impact on Lego sales is a great example of why marketers should take bigger, riskier bets on hard to track, hard to execute, execute organic marketing investments. Is there an idea floating around your head for Spark Toro that you'd love to try that maybe is just isn't the right time, you're a bit scared of doing it, or you don't quite have the budget? Is there something floating around there like the Lego movie? I don't think we're, I am not thinking on that scale yet. I'm not sure that I necessarily ever will be for Spark Toro specifically. I think that's just because Lego is something that appeals to hopefully every human being right? Like Lego's goal is to appeal to every person on the planet. And so a broad picture release that costs hundreds of millions of dollars that hopefully, you know, billion plus people see makes a lot of sense. For SparkToro, even something, you know, that 10 million people see is, is probably a little aggressive. Like it's just not, our focus is smaller because our market, our target audience and market uh, is much more focused. And And so I would say the thing that I would love to do I did this at Moz and I think it was a really good investment that, but it's so hard to prove the value um, that it returned. And that is we built an event series called MozCon. Uh, and, you know, the first, first few MozCons were pretty small. Eventually it grew to like, you know, 2000 marketers coming to Seattle every July. And um, a, a, a lot of people in the space would say like that, the MozCon stage helped make their career. Somebody that they met at MozCon helped build their career. Um, it, it became a launch off, a, a launching point for um, an incredible amount of, uh, of value and to a lot of wonderful people. I think that is something SparkToro can replicate, even though we're, you know, we're three people <laughs> instead of 200. And, uh, you know, our, our, our budget is probably one, one fiftieth the size of what I had at Moz. But nevertheless, um, I think that is possible for us to do. So Amanda and I have been talking about it and like trying to figure out what's possible this year, what could be possible next year, what could be possible in the years ahead. But I think it'd be a beautiful thing if in 10 years, you know, 10,000 marketers said, oh, going to SparkToro Fest or whatever it's called, that really made my career. That would be incredible. I love that. And look, that is an end goal for us too with the B2B playbook is we do want to do real life events. We'd love yeah. to gather like our little niche community of B2B marketers, get them all in the same room, you know, have a beer together, have a laugh together, have a bit of fun together. 
Um, it's probably a little bit different here to the US, but B2B marketing can be a little bit lonely in Australia. You know, we don't have the same population. Australians are a little more laid back too. And it would just be so nice to, to bind these people together and put them in the same room and, and see, you know, just beyond being friends, um, you know, what uh, mutually beneficial relationship can we have? I, so I did this on a very small scale. Um, my friend Peldy uh, runs a software company in uh, Bologna, Italy called Balsamic. And Balsamic does, uh, you know, UX, it's a UX and wireframing tool. And Peldy and I, you know, we, he was giving me a tour of his offices when, when I was visiting. Um, and I was like, my God, Peldy, like this office space is just gorgeous. You could do like incredible events here. He's like, yeah, but I don't use it for anything. I was like, my God, this is terrible. Like, this is, this is awful. Let me tell you about all the people who would love to come to Italy and, you know, have a... <laughs> have a get together. So I was like, we have to do something. So we, we put together this event the first time this year where we invited a bunch of indie um, startup founders to Bologna, held this two day event, um, connected up a ton of people and it was beautiful, right? It was exactly what you talked about, George, right? Like it starts from a place of friendship and camaraderie and support. And it goes to a place of you know, incredible relationship building and value building for their businesses and people giving each other advice and sharing their networks and helping them, you know, solve painful tasks and, and support each other through business problems and personal stuff, like personal life stuff too. But yeah, what, what else, what else is human life about if it's not helping each other do better and, and being there for each other and building relationships? Um, that's what I would like to spend the whole rest of my life doing, whether that's, you know, Spark Toro or this Indie Founders event or, you know, um, even jumping on podcasts with you guys. Right. Like, I hope that you think of me as someone you can turn to in the future for help. And if you ever come to Seattle, I hope you look me up. And, you know, if there's someone in your network that you're like, oh, my gosh, I think this person would really benefit from talking to Rand. I, I hope you connect me. And like that, that's my whole purpose. And if money is involved in it, Okay, that's great. And if uh, there's never a dime to be seen, I can't attribute anything to it. That's awesome too. I, I think that, like you said, right? Australians are more laid back. Europeans are generally much more laid back. Americans have this relentless focus on money. And I, you know, I think when your social safety net sucks ass, like you know, may, maybe that's required. Um, but yeah, that is it. It's disheartening, and and so I think. Yeah, we got to look out for each other, right? Rand, I love that, you know, you've gone long on helping people, building relationships. And what Kevin and I say is just like being kind, being patient, being helpful and trust that results have come. Um, for Kevin and I, it's like really inspiring to see that, you know, you've already been through that process and you've done it with Moz. It's the exact approach that Kevin and I take and we're people who are much earlier on in our journey. And look, I would like to think that it's just, we do it that way because it's the kind of people that we are, but it's, it's nice to see that, you know, if you do stick at it, the financial rewards can be there too. So you can, you know, enjoy your life too. So thank you so much for, for being that example for us. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Yeah. And I think that, um, it, it's interesting, like there's, there are financial rewards that await folks who invest this way. And also if you it's so obvious when people are purely in it for the money. 
and it just doesn't work, right? Then then the money thing doesn't work out. <laughs> so yeah. I, it, there's this weird <laughs> irony of, you know, if you are in the world of um, building relationships and showing kindness and your hope and expectation and goal is just money, eh, maybe, maybe just throw in the towel and, I don't know, get a job with Goldman Sachs, like... <laughs> and and I, I mean I mean some offense when I say that. Um. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ran. I think that's a, a beautiful place to round out the the conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time, um, Kevin. And I are so bought into Spark Toro and the journey that you and your awesome team are on. Um, is there anything you'd like to direct our audience's attention to, or anything you'd like to add before we round out? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, first off, thanks to you guys for having me and for the great conversation. Uh, if folks want to check out SparkToro, we have a like forever free plan. So you don't have to pay anything. You can just go use it and see if you find the data in there useful for, for whatever you're doing. Uh, it's SparkToro.com. If you are interested to hear me rant uh, on all of these topics that we have been talking about today, I'm most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time, Rand. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks very much. Catch you. Thank you. George, I don't know how you keep managing to land these amazing and awesome guests for the show, mate. Personally, I got a lot out of that conversation, even if, as usual, I'm having difficulties uh, on the technical side and having a three-way conversation online. I'll tell you what, George, one of these days, I really need to get a new laptop and properly join in on the fun. Yeah, special shout out to uh, Australia's broadband, uh, bringing the world's slowest internet to Kevin Chen's household. (laughs) No, it's great to have two of us here. So at least one of us can be connected, Kev, to these great guests who really are so kind and generous with their time, Rand in particular. Let's round out some of the key points, Kev, some of the key takeaways uh, in case, you know, our dear listeners somehow might have tuned out. Uh, while listening to the episode. That's it, George. The first one that I really noticed was when he said that pay channels incentives right now is attribution, not conversion. And that's a really good way to describing that idea that all these pay channels right now, they don't really care about whether you're actually growing your conversion number. What they want to know, what they want to show you is that they can attribute as many conversions as possible to their channels. I mean, it helps them grow their channels because the importance of the channels is overstated in that way. But remember, as Rand correctly pointed out, pay channels, the incentives for them is attribution, not conversion. And that's not serving your ultimate bottom line. And Kev, that kind of leads naturally into the next point that I thought was really good from the conversation, which is demand generation can be really hard, if not impossible to measure. I mean, we give our listeners some ways of measuring it to show that, yes, there's signs that it's working, but I think really that's why most marketers just don't do it. And as a result, it's a huge opportunity lost because really, when you think about it, Kev, the costs are pretty low and the inventory is very high. So those who are getting into it and doing it, the rewards are there. Another insight that we talked about with Rand was how personas can be limiting. I think this is quite a good nuance to add to the information that we've talked about, the framework that we've talked about, about putting together your ideal dream customer personas or avatars. Rand says that those personas can be limiting because often they don't reflect the full breadth of people within a collective group and that they should in fact be more broad and diverse. 
But at the same time, still allow you to understand where they get the information from and how these groups are made up. This type of persona is truly useful. That's it, Kev. And of course, it makes sense that Rand's tool, the new business he's working on, SparkToro, I mean, just like what he did with Moz, is really trying to put incredibly valuable information that everyone should have democratized at their fingertips. So the big boys don't just have the advantage over you. And it all comes down to this fundamental shift in what is the core question at the center of your marketing strategy? If you change up that question and open up to the possibility for a more effective and long-term and valuable relationship, that's when really good things start to happen. When that transactional nature of online marketing, of an online relationship fades into the background and it becomes a value-giving relationship, that's when lots of things start to improve. And I like Rand's example of comparing this to dating. Think of the relationship between a Tinder date versus meeting someone through friends. The starting point of those two points are very different. And that's sort of what he compares to between being actually helpful online versus running ads in the traditional way. Well, Kev, I mean, we're all about building relationships here. So I really love that analogy of his when it came to Tinder versus meeting someone through friends. And really just from Rand, there was a ton to learn from classic marketing thinking. And yes, we can go back to those principles of old, um, of traditional marketing that worked so well. But as Rand pointed out, you know what, now the world is very nuanced and requires a tailored approach. So really interesting to see the hybrid blend of those two. Yeah, and when we talk about specific examples, there's some bits of gold in there too. You know, we're talking about value building events that are offline, particularly small ones are often the most immensely satisfying and rewarding, both on a personal level and for your business. At the end of the day, it was again just great to chat with someone who has gone long on helping people and seeing that pay off. Yeah, a really great case study for nice guys don't finish last, Kev. And it was awesome to chat to. <laughs> definitely. He definitely was great to chat to. All right, listeners, go check out Rand Fishkin on Twitter at Randfish. And SparkToro, of course, at SparkToro.com. It's a great tool to have in the arsenal that will keep getting better over time. That's it. And as always, we're absolutely stoked that more and more of you are joining us each Monday morning by listening to the podcast. And if we can ask just one thing, it would be to please leave us a short review on whatever platform it is that you listen on. Or Kev, one better is to actually tell someone who could use the podcast about the podcast. That would be fantastic. It's a huge help to us and hopefully it helps someone else. Take care. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Kev. And catch you next week. Take care, listeners. Catch you next week. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.